Well, a young man named John received a parrot as a gift. I know Black Friday was this weekend. We got Christmas coming up. If you want to get a parrot for a loved one, knock yourselves out. That's kind of a weird gift. But nevertheless, John received a parrot as a gift. But this parrot was a little different. This parrot was a bad mamma jamma. He had a bad attitude and an even worse vocabulary. And every word out of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. Now, John tried and tried to change the bird's words, tried to change the bird's vocabulary. He would use only polite words, a soft tone. He would play soft, gentle, classical music. He tried bestowing, just lavishing the birds with gifts of bird seed and being sweet to the parrot, and nothing worked. As much as he could think of to clean up the bird's vocabulary, nothing was working. And so finally, John was just fed up, and he yelled at the parrot, and the parrot yelled back, and he yelled even harder, and the parrot started squawking, and he just started grabbing the bird by the beak, and the bird was hitting it with its wings, and feathers are flying everywhere, and just things were escalating. They were both getting irate. They were both fierce with each other. As John got angrier, the bird got ruder. As John got more irate, the, the bird got more obnoxious, and finally, John, in desperation, threw up his hands, grabbed the bird, and threw him into the freezer. And for a few minutes, the bird was kicking and screaming and squawking. Ah, 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 ah. All this kind of commotion. And then finally, after a few minutes, nothing. There was total dead silence. John started thinking what you probably all are thinking. Oh, no. What have I done? I mean, this wasn't a good pet, but I have harmed the very only pet that I own. And so he starts freaking out, thinking, what, what, what in the world have I done? And fearing that he had hurt the parrot, John quickly opened the door to the freezer, and the parrot calmly stepped out onto John's outstretched arms and said, Dear sir, I believe that I... I don't know why he has a British accent. <laughs> well, let's just go with it. Dear sir... I believe that I may have offended you with my rude language and uncontrollable actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions, and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. Well, John is just bewildered. What in the world happened? How could his attitude change so drastically? And he's thinking, what, what transpired in the freezer? And as he's about to ask the parrot, the parrot, what, what made such a dramatic change in his behavior, the parrot, parrot continued, uh, but dear sir, may I ask you, what did the turkey in the freezer do that was so bad? <laughs> you see, when the world thinks of repentance, what comes to mind for them? Is it changing momentarily because they might face some consequences? Is it, well, I'll be a little sorry for a season, then I'm going to go right back into the very pattern of what I was doing, thinking, and saying? Is that repentance? Is that the biblical view of repentance? See, faith and repentance are a constant part of the Christian life. Now, not unto salvation. I'm not saying you have to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and trust in him for salvation over and over and over. Jesus was crucified how many times? Once. But I'm talking about a life of constantly striving to believe in Jesus and to turn your life over to him more and more. This is waving the white flag of spiritual surrender every single day. It's understanding the seriousness of your sin and the greatness of your Savior. 
And faith and repentance is the intersection of those facts. I love what John Piper says. He says, you are more sinful than you ever thought you were, but he is more loving than you ever dreamed he could be. I love that because at either end of the extremes, it cannot be true enough. You can't realize how true that is, that we are so wicked, but he is so gracious and great, and faith and repentance intersects those facts. And so the point this morning is this, return to the Lord, for he makes his people clean. Turn to the book of Malachi, if you're not there already, in your copies of the scripture on your phone, in your phone app. If you got it, Malachi, how many of you have ever heard a sermon from the book of Malachi? Like three? How many of you ever read the book of Malachi? Man, this is, it is such an overlooked, this is one of those blink and you miss it books. It's four chapters, it's in the Minor Prophets, it's the last book of the Old Testament, but it, man, this book packs a punch. Because in four short chapters, it is the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It points to the herald of the coming Messiah. It points to the coming Messiah himself. It points to the new covenant, which would replace the old covenant. And so there's so much prophetic messianic language in here. It's so powerful. And this book is a dialogue between the Lord and his people. And God would accuse his people of doing wrong, accuse his people of idolatry, apathy, uh, all these things, false worship, And his people would respond audaciously like, moi? What? Us? No. They They would question God. Appalled and bewildered, they would question God. And so back and forth they went. God would accuse. They would question God. And so look at chapter 2, verse 17. We have it up. Do we have it up on the screen? There we go. God says, Malachi, on behalf of God, says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is this God of justice? Malachi says, You have wearied the Lord. And the Israelites respond, How have we wearied him? Now, children would never weary their parents with blatant, repetitive disobedience, right? And all the parents said, what is the, whatever is the opposite of amen. <laughs> of course, children do this. They constantly weary parents with blatant, repetitive disobedience. And even worse, do children act like they're sorry right after they get caught, right after they're in trouble, and then go and do it all over again later? Yes. Listen, we have a two-year-old and a five-year-old, and our two-year-old is every bit of a two-year-old, if you know what I mean. We call her our two-nager. And I mean, she has learned the word no. We never taught her that word, but she has learned it well, and she uses it well. And so she will, you know, have a doll in her hand, and, and the doll will get taken away, and she will whap whoever did that on the nose. So if sister takes it away, bam, right on the nose. She's done it to her mother and I. Bam! And so we will discipline her, and she'll be ah, just crying and crying. I'm sorry, sissy. And then five minutes later, she has her doll. It gets taken away. Guess what she does again? Bam! Right on the nose. <laughs> Repetitive, blatant disobedience. Now, is that genuine repentance? No. And God says, I am wearied by your words. 
I'm sick of your empty worship. I'm sick of hypocrisy. I'm sick of fake repentance. They were saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Where is this God of justice? As if they were saying, well, if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. He's not being fair. God apparently winks at sin and moves along. Nothing to see here. He wouldn't punish for sins. God forgives anyway, so just do whatever you want to do. Throw God a simple, I'm sorry, here and there, and that'll make him happy. Mm. They are questioning God's character as if their sense of justice is more refined than his. Does that sound familiar? And they were upset that wicked people were not yet being punished. Well, if he exists, then why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do that? And they assumed that God didn't care, even though God was patient with his people, giving them time to repent, as it says in 2 Peter 3.9, if we could throw that up here. 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is, what? Patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, but all should reach repentance. God is patient so that we would repent. Number one, the point is this. God is love and justice. So he cannot let people, he cannot let sin go unpunished. Love and justice. These go hand in hand. Listen, if someone attacked my little girls whom I love, whoo, Hell hath no fury like a daddy scorned. They would face justice. Love and justice go hand in hand. And we have sinned against a holy God. We just sang about him. Holy, holy, holy. He is love and he is justice. God cannot allow sin to go unpunished because then he would cease to be holy and righteous. If a convicted serial killer stood before a judge... And all the evidence weighs against him. He's admitted guilt. And the judge says, all right, are you sorry for what you did? Yeah. You going to do it again? No. All right, you can go. Is that a judge that upholds justice? How much more our God who is holy, 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 love and justice. And you cannot separate the two. And love and justice were perfectly intersected on the cross. Justice because God poured out his full wrath upon his son. And as his son absorbed his wrath on our behalf, but love because God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love and justice demonstrated on the cross. He goes on, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of his covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller soap, launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Where is the God of justice, they ask. Well, here in chapter 3, verse 1, he has prophesied. In verse 1, many scholars believe there are two different messengers referred to here. 
Now, is one of the messengers Malachi himself? The word Malachi in Hebrew, Malachi, literally means my messenger. Probably not. Because he says that this messenger is coming. He is not yet here. What about John the Baptist? John the baptizer? He's probably the first messenger, but not this second. John the baptizer was referred to as a prophet of the Lord who prepared the way for Jesus. And Jesus in Matthew 11.10 refers to this passage when he talks about John the Baptist. So the first messenger very likely is John the Baptist. Who is the second messenger? Is the second messenger Jesus? I would say absolutely unequivocally. The messenger is equated with the Lord in verse 1 and then is defined in very messianic terms in verses 2 and 3. The New King James Version capitalizes the second messenger, but not the first. Look at your text again. It says, the messenger of the covenant. What covenant? The everlasting, unconditional, sacred bond between God and his people. This is the keeper of that covenant. And then in verses 2 and 3, it says that his coming would be awesome, terrifying, Powerful, incredible, exciting. Who can endure it? Who can even stand in his presence? You know, back in the day, what was the posture of a servant when the king entered the room? What would they do? They bowed down. They, they hit the floor, hit their knees in humble, contrite, prostrate manner. They would recognize the great power and stature by kneeling in submission What is the reaction in the Bible of everyone who encounters the the presence of the king who is over all kings? What would they do? They would humbly bow on their faces. You know, in Isaiah 6, it says that the prophet Isaiah, actually, let's just read it. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, angels, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, say this with me, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here you have Isaiah, a prophet of God, one of the most righteous men at the time, and he is saying, Woe is me, bowing his heart, likely bowing his knee in the presence of the Almighty King, whose voice thunders in his throne room. And the angels constantly, every second of every day, are crying out what? Holy, holy, holy. Now, do you recognize the significance of that? We just sang it earlier. Holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, if you wanted to emphasize a characteristic, you, you couldn't, you know, in, in script, you don't underline it. They couldn't underline it. They wouldn't bold it, italicize it. So they would repeat it. That's why Jesus says, truly, Truly, I say to you, verily, verily, he's saying, listen, what I'm about to say is so true. Listen up. 
But never, never in Hebrew language would you ever repeat a characteristic three times in a row. And God is declared as not love, 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 or just, 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 or mercy, 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 or grace, 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 forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. He is all those things and more, but he is first and foremost holy, holy, holy. We have to recognize his holiness. Because that drives his glory. That drives everything about what we should do and how we should act and how we should live and how we should think. Philippians 2.10, it says, At the name of Jesus, the name above all names, every knee will bow. So number two, Jesus' holy presence is awesome. Come on, it is awesome. Can I get an amen? amen? His presence is awesome. How so? Well, look at Malachi. It says, for he is like launderer's soap. You ever get a stain on your clothes that you just cannot get out? Man, I'm going to tell you right now, I am a worse eater than my two-year-old. I, I can barely go through an entire day with getting some kind of food on me. I get stains all, on me all the time. And, and you know when you need a stain, you just cannot get out. It's incredibly frustrating. Well, in many times in Scripture, holiness and purity were represented by extremely clean garments, without any spot, without any stain, without any wrinkle, not even a speck of dust. Look at these passages, Jeremiah 2.22, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Mark 9, verse 3, Jesus' garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Take that, tide. <laughs> Ephesians 5.27, Jesus will present his church as radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and Blameless, clean garments represented absolute purity and holiness. There is no stain of sin. Church, do you understand what this is saying? Do you understand that it is saying, through Jesus, your sins are washed clean? Come on now, I know we got some saints in the house who can get excited by that. We get excited by the bears who are stinking it up right now. Can we not get excited about, sorry, I hit some nerves right there. Can we not get excited that through Jesus, your sins are washed clean? They're gone. Your sins are gone. Why fret over your past if you have turned over your sins to Jesus? We call that repentance. And Jesus, the launderer, says, come, give me those dirty garments. Give me those tattered clothes. Let me take those dirty, dirty, disgusting garments, tainted by the stains of sin, tattered by brokenness and shame. Let me have your sin, son. Let me have your shame, daughter. You see that particular stain? That particular stain right here? I can see that you tried to rub out that stain with good church attendance. But you actually rub that stain in harder and harder, and now it is more deeply embedded in the fibers because you tried to do it on your own power, on your own will. I can get that out. I can make it like new. Oh, you see this stain here? See, this stain here, you, you actually, it's, it's all tattered, it's all frayed, the material's all frayed because you tried to rub harder and harder on your own effort, on your own ability, on your own power. You tried to be a good religious person, a good Christian person, 
And so you tried to rub and rub and rub out of shame and disgusted by your sin, and that stain went nowhere. I can get that stain out. I can make it like new. Oh, I see this stain right under your collar right here. See this stain right here? You didn't even touch this stain. This was ignored. You didn't even notice this stain because this is the stain of pride. Easily ignored, even though it was right under your nose. You didn't know it the whole time. But guess what? I can get that stain out. I can make it like new. Oh, and I see what you did here. These are some sewn-on patches. You just wanted to cover up the stains. <laughs> Pretend they're not there. Pretend they never existed. Now, you may fool other people with these patches, but you're not fooling me. I see right through the patches. I see that stain. I can remove the patches. I can get that stain out. I can make it like new. I can make you like new. And Jesus takes the tarnished garment and he washes it in the only detergent powerful enough to remove any and every stain of sin, his blood. Behold, Jesus makes all things new. It's the greatest laundry detergent in history. The blood of Jesus. Look at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from what? A little sin? Some sin? Most sin? What's it say, church? All sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. And so the blood of Jesus cleanses and purifies from not some, not a little, not most, all sin and all unrighteousness. Oh, the beautiful irony. Blood is this symbol of death and guilt. And it was our blood that was deserved. We were clothed in sin, clothed in guilt, clothed in shame, and yes, clothed in death. And Jesus steps forward and says, Father, may I? Let me take their sin and I will make it my own so that they can, can be declared righteous. Let me take their guilt and make it my own so that they can be declared innocent. Let me take their shame and make it my own so that they can be set free. Let me take their death and I will die their death so that they might have life. The blood of Jesus. Blood that actually represents death, gives us life because he traded his for ours. Church, is that good news? I need to hear from somebody. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. Jesus is the launderer's soap. But moving on, it says he is also the refiner's fire. This is so cool. You know how a silversmith centuries ago would purify silver? They would take all these rocks, this ore, these minerals, and they would dump it into a big cauldron. And they would put that cauldron on some fire, and they would superheat the cauldron. And so everything's bubbling, it starts boiling, and the silver, because it's heavier, actually sinks to the bottom. And you know what rises to the top? These impurities. they called dross. And so he would take what was called a skimmer, and he would skim off these big impurities, and he would take them out. And he'd wait a little longer. Smaller impurities would bubble up. He would take the skimmer and skim those out, and then smaller ones, smaller ones, and smaller ones, and he would refine it and refine it and refine it, purifying it, until, as it is said, it was so pure that he could see his reflection in it. You see where I'm going with this, right? 
God purifies us and makes us holy and he's skimming out all these impurities, taking out all these things until he can see the image of Jesus in us. Oh, he is good. And sometimes, church, I hate to say this, sometimes God shapes and sanctifies us with the fire of suffering to purge us of sin. God will use whatever it takes, even if it causes suffering in our lives. I love this quote, God meets you where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. He meets you where you are, but he loves us too much to leave you there. See, we live in a you-do-you culture. We live in a culture that says, hey, you do you, you be you, you do whatever you feel is right, whatever you feel makes you happy, no matter what God says, no matter what the Bible says, no matter what others tell you, you just do whatever you got to do to be happy. Essentially, they're saying, you do what is right in your own eyes. Now, you look in Scripture, any time it says doing what is right in your own eyes, is that ever a good thing? God does not celebrate a doing what is right in your own eyes culture. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's okay to not be okay. Now, turn to your other neighbor and say, but it's not okay to stay there. It's okay to not be okay. It is not okay to stay there. And God's intention with his people is to purify them and purge them of sin. Again, God is holy, holy, holy. And our sin is an affront to his holiness. We should be broken and anguished over our sin and crying out, God, continually purify me, make me holy, be holy as I am holy, God says. And so number three, the Lord is purifying us. Repentance is simply handing over the dirty laundry, all the stains to the Lord, and say, God, I can't do anything with these. I'm trusting you to cleanse them. It's faith and repentance. And faith and repentance go hand in hand. Like I said, they go together. They're two sides of the same coin. When you turn away from something, which is the action of repentance, you naturally, logically are turning toward something. So when you repent, you are saying, this sin cannot satisfy me. I cannot save myself. I am turning away from this, and I'm turning to Jesus as my only option of salvation, faith, and repentance. And that's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, like 2 Corinthians 7 says. Worldly sorrow is sorry that you got caught. Sad about experiencing the pain and the hurt caused by sin, but godly sorrow longs for a restored relationship. Worldly sorrow is concerned with consequences. Godly sorrow is concerned with contentment in Christ. Worldly sorrow falls away from God. True repentance always leads to Jesus falling at his feet. The fruit of true repentance is greater spiritual growth. The fruit of fake repentance is contentment in the world apart from God leading to spiritual death. So we look at verse 4, and the text says it is only through repentance from sins and the Lord's cleansing of our sins that our relationship is where it needs to be so that our, our worship can be authentic and genuine like it used to be. Now look at verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. We like that first part. God's saying, then I will draw near to you. For judgment, 
I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, the foreigner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Praise God. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? The Lord gives an answer again to the question, where is the God of justice? Verse 5, he says, God in his righteous anger will be against those who are unrepentant. They do not love God. They oppose God as demonstrated in how they treat others. God addresses sorcerers, adulterers, liars, people who oppress others, particularly those who are marginalized in society. And all these people use others to get what they want. They don't love God. They don't love others. They love themselves. And they will use and abuse whoever they want, however they want, however they can, whenever they want, and to get what they want. And God says, listen to this, I will be a swift witness against them. Ooh, you do not want the Lord against you. Now we look at this and go, yeah, you get them. God, you get those sinners. But before church, before we get on our high horse, you have to acknowledge that we were at one time among them. We were at one time with them. We were at one time them, and God was against you, and he was against me. But look at verse 6. But to those who love God, we are called children of Jacob. This refers to Malachi 1, verse 2, where God loves Jacob, his people. The Lord is confessing his covenant love for his people. He would pay a price of redemption to redeem his people so they do not suffer under his just wrath. And then he says, I, the Lord, never change. Mm. Is that good news these days? This is actually quite comforting. People change. Personalities change. Fashions change. I still dress like I was in the 80s, but listen, fashions change. Trends change. Sports teams change. Oh, and everybody groaned right there. Kingdoms change. Politics change. Sometimes politicians change their position within the same week. Come on. Worldviews change. Cultures change. Circumstances change. Uh, situations change. But God never changes. He never moves. His character is steadfast. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this makes the Lord an excellent rock, a foundation, an anchor point for your life. Civil engineers say that when you are building a massive building or a large structure like a bridge, the most important thing you could do is to analyze the soil. And so they will spend days, weeks, sometimes months analyzing the soil because if you build a structure on a shifting foundation, it will not work. But this says God is not a shifting foundation. I, the Lord, never change. And God's heart always has and always will be for his people. And interestingly, he says that they, his people, are not consumed. Consumed by what? His wrath against our sins. God's people are not consumed. No matter what you have done, no matter what 
you have thought, no matter what you have said, no matter how egregious something has happened in the past, God still loves us through Jesus. Lamentations 3 says, Because the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions. His mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Praise God. And so number four, lastly, God's people have a covenant love relationship that cannot be broken. You don't have to fear the wrath of God. You are free to be recipients of his grace. And that's what makes verse seven so beautiful. Look at verse seven again. Verse 7, God says, you are steeped in sin. How about trying things my way? Return to me, and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. Simply put, repent. And then his people, for the first time and the only time in this entire book, ask the right question. They ask the appropriate question, how shall we return? They're saying, how shall we repent? See, repentance is not an event. It's a process. What does that process look like? Well, real quickly, I'm going to give you a few things. This is probably not in the notes up here, so if you want to write these down, great. But uh, five things. What does this process look like? First, you have to acknowledge the problem. That just makes sense. That's just common sense. If there is a problem, you have to acknowledge the problem before the problem can be addressed and fixed. And acknowledgement of the problem we call sin is a biblical word called confession. That's literally what confess means. So you are acknowledging, confessing your sin, confessing the dangers and consequences of that sin. And yes, you are confessing your need for Jesus. So be specific in your confession. Don't just say, God, uh, forgive me for my sins. Although I believe God is gracious and he would honor that prayer. What sins? God, forgive me for my greed, my lust, my jealousy, my anger, my bitterness. You can go on and on and on, as exemplified by X, Y, and Z. <laughs> Confess specifically. Be specific, but then also be broken. Be broken over our sin. Can I be real for a second? In the American church, in American Christianity, I don't see anguish over sin anymore. I don't see a deep-seated, soul-searching kind of anguish in our hearts where we are crying out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Where's the anguish in the church today over our sin? Be broken, be anguished. And if you don't have that brokenness, you don't have that anguish, ask God for it. And I promise he will give it to you. God, break me, make me broken over my sin. So number one, confess. Number two, cling to Christ. Cling to him like in the stories of Jesus in the New Testament where they would just cling to the hem of his robe and grab like the woman with bleeding, just grab the hem of his robe, cling to him, hide yourself in him. Set your heart to seek his face. Look to Jesus. That means appeal to his character, specifically his mercy and his grace. Third, shift your mindset toward hope in Jesus. The word for repentance in the New Testament in Greek is the word metanoia. It literally meant after mind. So it was a transformation. It was a changing from thinking one way to a better way of thinking. So you transform your mind from thinking that sin is going to satisfy, that sin will bring joy, to recognizing and acknowledging that only Jesus brings true joy. You expose the deception of sin. Sin is deceitful. It is a liar. So you expose it as a liar and you delight in joy through Jesus. 
you must see that Jesus is better and more satisfying. You must see that sin is never satisfying and Jesus is ever satisfying. That is the crux of true repentance. You could be sorrowful over your sin, but if you don't have that, you are not genuinely repenting. Shift your mindset. See that Jesus is better. Fourth, trust in his forgiveness. Know that if you confess, God will forgive and thank him for the forgiveness we have in Jesus. And lastly, submit and surrender. Cry out, Lord, change me. I can't change myself. I can't change my heart. I can't change my thought patterns. I can't change the way I talk. I need you to change my heart. So I am submitting my heart. I'm submitting my life to you. I am yours. Change me. And watch the Holy Spirit do wonders. So here's what we're going to do. Before our band comes up, we're going to have a time of praying prayers of repentance. We're going to cry out to the great launderer who can wash away the stains of our sin by his blood and has through his death. And we are going to pray to the refiner's fire who purifies us and makes us holy.